So welcome back to another episode of the Python People podcast, uh, the home for global technology leaders to share insights with the tech community. And uh, a very warm welcome to this week's guest, Enrique Munez de Cote, um, who is a, a data leader and I think serial entrepreneur. It's probably the best description we can, we can use for you, Enrique. Um, and yeah, I guess to frame the episode today, Enrique, you've got a really interesting story because uh, obviously you've come from a very impressive academic and research background and then gone on to achieve some really exciting things in, in sort of commercial world with with ventures that you've been involved with and, and various startups and tech businesses as well so i think you've got a very unique perspective um and, and hopefully a lot of value to share on both sides of those coins um so it'd be great to i guess find out a little bit more about you and invite you to give us a, a bit about your background and um your career bio to date if you'd be so kind amazing well, thanks. Thanks a lot for the invitation. First, uh, it's uh, it's Friday and it's sunny. It is Nothing indeed. Go wrong, right? Exactly that. Yeah, it is Friday <laughs> the thirteenth day. I only just realised that earlier on. <laughs> but apart from that, I won't worry about it. <laughs> All right, amazing. Um, well, a little bit about my back- background. So, um, I I think my my path really starts with my undergrad degree. Uh, I was in biomedical sciences, and that's where I mostly fell in love with the uh, with the exact disciplines like maths and physics and biology. Um, I did a PhD in machine learning. Uh, that was that was quite fun. Uh, actually, this was before machine learning was uh, fancy. Before machine learning uh, was machine learning. <laughs> pardon? Before machine learning was machine learning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody was like, "What? What is that AI thing? Like, how do I how do I do that?" Like, yeah, nobody knew about that. So, uh, I did a postdoc in in uh, Southampton in multi agent systems. That was a fantastic time, actually. It was a big project that I was involved uh, doing autonomous agents. That was the kind of like the first application that I started really where I, where I really understood what machine the power of machine learning in the future because uh, this was. Uh, First of all, this was a, a coordinated a collaboration between the host, the University of Southampton and Oxford and Imperial College and Bristol and some uh, enterprise like Bay Systems. Uh, and uh, this was about understanding how autonomous agents in an open environment could could end up doing things like uh, taking their own, making their own decisions. Uh, so. Uh, Take care of problems like how do, would they coordinate? Uh, uh, some of them might even be competing if the, if this is a really open uh, uh, multi-agent system. Uh, how would you think about optimizing at a system level uh, if uh, if they're set up to make some kind of task? Uh, very hard problems. Uh, still, are, those problems are still like open questions. Yeah. Uh, but back then, uh, it was like really. The first time that we actually started thinking about those problems. Mm. Um, so I've been an academic in machine learning uh, after that. So uh, I was faculty. I've been. I, I am faculty still. Uh, uh, at the, I've graduated. I don't know, like thirteen or fourteen master's students and uh, like six or seven PhD students. Uh, I taught. I don't teach anymore right now uh, on graduate level. 
Then I was an early employee at Second Mind. Uh, this was a company, still is a company based in Cambridge, the UK. Uh, being an early employee there, it, uh, my main focus was basically to to do great breakthrough breakthroughs in scientific advances in machine learning. Um, the disadvantage there was we were a tiny team compared to the competition. Uh, competition being the biggest, well, the biggest suspects, Google and Facebook and, and the likes. Mm. Uh, however, we did differentiate us uh, ourselves quite uh, quite interestingly. Uh, our take on machine learning was and has always been uh, try to achieve the same kind of uh, uh, performance with a lot less data, which we didn't have our hands on. So, and um, it turns out that, that that's possible, and that's actually one of the biggest things and concerns nowadays. That well, what if you're not a Google that cannot uh, don't have that kind of uh, Computer power and data access to data. What can you do about that? That does that mean that actually uh, you cannot use machine learning? And that's not true at all. Uh, there are some techniques as powerful as, as deep learning or the kind of classic approaches that these big companies uses that uh, that are probably a better fit to your problem. Usually, actually. Mm. Um, so we did great. I moved on uh, from that due to my curiosity, basically, to understand uh, how can we, how can, how can, how to apply machine learning to, to change the world. Really, um, I, uh, I really was interested in to be um, making machine learning, uh, turning it into from a cover page, fancy acronym to really something that is transformational for an industry. So I was very interested in, in understanding how in different industries might use machine learning. And I've been on that path ever since, really. I started a deep uh, tech machine learning focused consultancy business to understand uh, problems around uh, on that path. And uh, I've served many verticals, including biotech and fintech, insurance, technology, healthcare, uh, and even government. I helped the, the cabinet office understand, for example, 70 petabytes of uh, digitized documents, uh, which is kind of like one of the first real big data problems that I see outside of, uh, of the biggest aspects again, mm -hmm. uh, which was a fantastic problem to work on, definitely. Uh, well, the kind of technologies that, that I would apply for these, for solving these problems is like, well, my specialty, reinforcement learning, but also Gaussian process, natural language processing, computer vision. Um, I then open up a company, uh, Gecomatics, uh, is uh, an AI computer vision startup, uh, funded to solve the scarcity of high quality, recent geographic information. That's a mouthful, but it means that we were really interested in redesigning how outdoor mobile mapping is done. Uh, we use 360 cameras to that you can mount on any vehicle. And uh, after, uh, after getting all the information, all the data, uh, then our deep learning algorithms will recognize objects and put them on the map. Basically, that's in a nutshell what we're doing. 
And then I joined forces with uh, a friend and colleague of mine and still are on that path uh, to to uh, kind of merge my my agency, my deep tech agency with his. His agency was uh, about growth and it ends up being an, a data-driven approach to growing startups. And that's uh, that's kind of like my path into entrepreneurship and the mix between science and, and tech, really. Awesome. All right, thanks. That's really, uh, really interesting to hear your sort of foundations. And, and given that you've come from that kind of numerate sort of mathematical background, was it always a logical choice for you to go into the data science and, and machine learning world in particular? What sort of drew you to that versus maybe going more into software engineering as, as a, an example? What, what was it about data science and machine learning that appealed to you? Right. Well, um, I think the idea of getting into technology overall, it, it started really a long time ago. Uh, I think I knew that I was uh, going into that path since I stayed uh, for a year with my grannies uh, in the States. Uh, I was 12 years old back then. and My grandparents, uh, they bought me my first computer. And uh, however, being, being grannies, they knew nothing about that. So they just told me like, this is this big machine that promises to do a bunch of things. Off you go. Like, do you want to play a game? You you need to understand how to install it and how to make that work. And then all sorts of problems started appearing. Like uh, I didn't have enough RAM memory and, and I was 12 years old. Like, and I was going with my machine to the shop and trying to like with real geeks, trying to find out what the problem was, how to install stuff. And yeah, that was my fascination with making machines work and yeah that's that's what got me into machine learning because uh that's actually the the kind of uh formal training on how to make machines make decisions yeah 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 absolutely i can understand that and i think it's interesting i've i've gone in my background of 15 years of of, of tech recruitment i've seen uh, probably first 10 years of my career actually was focused more so on the software engineering side. And then uh, since starting True North and, and is focusing pretty extensively on the data science side, um, yeah, I've kind of seen both both of those markets and sort of how they interplay. And of course, there's a lot of similarity and a lot of overlap, absolutely. But I think one of the biggest differentiators that I've, I've seen and, and one of the things that comes across quite regularly to me when I'm speaking to candidates is the passion for you know, how machine learning can, you know, Re different approaches to you know really big messy open-ended problems but how they can genuinely solve real world problems you know and either problems for businesses or problems for you know other other causes but um is that link between you know when you're coding an application okay it's great sometimes it's you know, fine to see the website built at the end of it you know it's fantastic but actually in the in the data science world i think you know you can kind of go one step further and actually really see how what you're doing is having a, a genuine impact in, in, in the real world. Um, and I think that's why I was quite, quite keen to understand from your point of view, sort of the, you know, the differences between research and academia and, and how data science is applied there. And also how you see, you know, data science in, in the commercial real world applied you know, ML setting. Um, you know, how, how do you kind of see those two interplaying? Cause I get, I, I guess that a lot, I think when data scientists around, you know, is there a tangible value in furthering my education? You know, let's say somebody's got to sort of a master's degree and they're thinking, right, should I go and do a PhD 
or not and you know i guess my my answer is that is always it's kind of depends what you want to do uh, ultimately but but really you know what's gonna what's gonna provide you with the most fulfillment um you know and because i think both both areas will develop different skills um i suppose um but how do you sort of see those those two interplaying between academia research and data science and real world applied you know data science uh great question uh I think there's no like one silver bullet answer to these really. Uh, it's I see it as a double-edged sword, really. Uh, when you over-specialize, then definitely you will end up uh, in a situation where you're uh, uh, probably a world leader in one area, but you're too into it that uh, it's really hard to abstract out. Uh, on the other side, when I see that all the time with with my uh, employees with a master's degree trying to do like break uh, grant breaking stuff, that they just don't have the tools to get to the next level. So, long story short, I think uh, as much as you can learn, machine learning is not an easy topic. It's not a let's use something that is outsourced um, and let's download it from, from GitHub and start something. You can get as far as like that 80%, but the, the extra 20%, that's gonna take you a lot, a lot more effort. And mm. uh, you will need a degree like a PhD for that and probably more way beyond that to get that extra 20%. And sadly, machine learning is like that. Like, uh, everybody can get to that 80%. Chat uh, GPT right now is at that. Like It's great for a lot of things, but when you really, really want to use it and apply it for something serious, that's when it breaks down and you're not going to be able to use it most probably. And that happens with all, like across the board, really, in machine learning. So you can get something very, very fast to get to that 80%. But when you really try to apply it to the real world, that companies and industries, they're going to, try to get it to over 90, 95, 99% if you're in healthcare uh, of accuracy. And then that's where the classic stuff don't stop, uh, stop working. And you really don't know what you're doing if you if you don't have a, a proper degree about that. Yeah, that's really great. I've never kind of heard that um, description of, of how the two interface. But yeah, I, I can sort of fully understand that. So do you feel it's do you feel that it's valuable to do a PhD in a domain that actually you may end up not not working in? Let's say you go and do a um, a PhD which is focused on solving a particular problem within, you know, um, image classification and recognition within uh, health tech space, but then actually you end up going into a different a different area. Um, do you still feel there's a value in the skills and, and the kind of research that you, that you do within a PhD, which sort of just makes you a, a more complete data scientist, um, even if you're not necessarily in that particular niche? Um, let's let, let's see if I understood your question. Uh, so what you're saying is, uh, does it really make sense to like specialize on something very specific in uh, doing a PhD in something very specific in machine learning uh, or and, and what kind of areas would be most promising to specialize on? Yeah? 
Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, if you're going to do a PhD and you're going to sort of do research to solve a particular problem, and let's say it's very niche within the, the health tech space, which is obviously, you know, some, an area that data science is adding a huge amount of value at the moment, and it's it's fantastic. Um, you know, it would make sense, like you said, to get that extra 20% that somebody's really specialised in that particular niche. Mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. understand the inner, inner workings to get that level of accuracy, like, like you yeah. mentioned. Even if somebody ends up doing a PhD, in that particular area but then maybe further down the line they sort of want to transition into a different area of yeah. different industry different domain yeah. area of data science altogether mm -hmm. do you still feel there's a value that's gained through the process of going through the phd and the kind of research that you would do there and do you feel that's actually does it make you more a complete data scientist that you could then um extrapolate that right yeah out to other other domains other challenges other problems Right. Uh, well, it might not uh, work. I so, long story short, I absolutely think that that's the case. Uh, you will be able to. What what you're really getting from a PhD is just the uh, you you specializing on something definitely, but you're also getting into that mindset of uh, problem solving in a very rigorous way, uh, with the right kind of tools. So that's. Those tools are applicable across the board, really. So uh, I specialize on decision making, which is a, a type of machine learning called reinforcement learning. Uh, however, uh, my previous company was in computer vision. Uh, that hadn't, I, I knew little about that when I was doing my PhD and even when I did my postdoc, but that uh, didn't prevent me to, uh, to actually do some very interesting advances in, in computer vision uh, when I opened up my company. And, and the way that I did that, definitely there's a learning curve, but it's a much lighter uh, learning curve than, than if you want to start that with, with just a master's degree. So yeah. yes, I think I think it does help. And it also, I think uh, it, uh, I mean, if you're specializing on doing a PhD on something super, super uh, particular, then probably that there's less chances that you're going to be able to to transfer some of that knowledge uh, mm. to, to something else. But there are so many pro very interesting problems, also problems right now on machine learning that are worth many PhDs uh, that uh, definitely there's, uh, there's very good chances that, uh, that you're gonna find something that uh, you're gonna find useful, regardless if, uh, if it's exactly this, the thing that you specialized on. Yes, yeah, yeah, I can, uh, can definitely understand that. and. And I think to that point, that's one of the things. Again, I'm I'm, I'm really um, you know passionate about with with the domain of data science is actually there's some you know you almost once you have that foundation, you have that ability to approach certain problems and understand the best fit for the the particular problem that you're dealing with. It's kind of a really exciting world then because it's up to you really what problem you want to solve, isn't it? And kind of how how universally applicable you know data science techniques and strategies can be to really solving you know whatever kind of problem you want to to solve. Um, and I think that's one of the greatest um, you know things. I'm really optimistic about the data science career. You know, as a as a right, yes. path is because you you can actually end up working on some really disparate problem over here one one year and then maybe another problem over there but it, it sort of keeps it really interesting for the individual as well because obviously they're constantly learning about different domains and, and different um, areas as well so um so yeah that's uh, i think that's a really good point oh, but, but thinking about the the other side of the of the sword uh uh 
Over-specializing definitely has its problems. Uh, so you end up spending four years in something very, very particular that uh, at some point you're not going to see like, why did you even get started into, into that path? So it's not for everyone, absolutely. And probably uh, sticking with the master's degree, it's depending on your career path, really. Because if you're into entrepreneurship and you you're the, you want to become something like a CEO kind of thing, then you probably don't need a, a PhD necessarily. You're probably like well off understanding at the, at not even at a superficial level. Like I've seen like fantastic master degree problem solvers that are up to par with anybody in, in with with a with a PhD. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I mean. It depends really on your career path. So, so a master's degree, is, uh, I think it would be the bare minimum to to get into a technical field like machine learning. But uh, you don't necessarily need a PhD at all, by all means. Cool, interesting, and 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 I guess on the other side of that, you know, the, the kind of talking about specialization, you mentioned earlier, um, a lot of companies often are, are, are put off the idea of machine learning or sort of pursuing something in, in machine learning because they think they haven't got the computing power of Google or the kind of maturity or the size of the data sets that they would need to get any any kind of value out of machine learning. But would you say, you know, there's a particular trigger point for a company where they could actually get some really valuable machine learning initiatives underway, you know, either a size of data set maybe they have access to or a maturity of their data processes or, you know, what, what would you say actually is... Uh, the kind of trigger point for you that you would say actually there is a real use case here that data science can and machine learning can really add a lot of value what, what does that look like to you there are two um two industries that or two technologies really that are uh ready to be deployed in in uh in industry one is computer vision the other is natural language understanding or natural language processing it's usually called and uh, those two things are uh, definitely technologies that are quite ready to be deployed uh, in many different uh, problems from healthcare, for example, to have your uh, kind of like your first uh, triage uh, point of contact with, uh, with, with to, to really understand what, what kind of problem you have, uh, kind of like a first contact to your GP. Uh, to to things like like the company that I that, that I formed previously, which is understanding your surroundings through computer vision, uh, those kind of things definitely that are not uh, life threatening, definitely can be tackled with machine learning nowadays. Uh, autonomous driving is another area where all of these things come together really. Uh, so absolutely, there are fields ready for for machine learning. There are others. A little bit more exotic, like we still don't know exactly what type of what what uh, data set size do you need, uh, how clean do you need it, uh, what type of techniques work best for different things. So uh, it's a problem to be discovered, really. And uh, however, that's 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 exactly where what I'm specializing right now. Like the way to you make that you make a company from a prototype into a real thing that has into a real machine that produces value for customers and hence make a company grow is by trial and error, by having a fantastic uh, experimental framework where you go from prototype into application as fast as possible and as accurate as possible. 
So you break stuff uh, along the path. That's great for innovation. You don't have many rules, but you also need a framework on how to deal with uh, with experimentation. What happens if you if you if it's not working? What kind of results are you hoping for? What methods are you using for trying for trying things out? So a simple example is, for example, on on marketing. Marketing, it's like there's there's so much data out there to to be able to, to be injected into an algorithm and make sense of what works and what doesn't optimize basically your 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 marketing campaigns. So that's a problem that definitely uh, nowadays most of the serious companies in marketing are using some sort of algorithms or, so, or some sort of a data-driven decision-making. Uh, and uh, however, it's... Is, is it working across the board? No, I think it's it's early days. Uh, some of them that have these experimental framework already kind of uh, carved out, then definitely those are the ones that are are uh, making a difference. Uh, but yeah, what what experimental method? Uh, how do you use it? That's something that I'm trying to figure out right now as as we speak, actually. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because you you mentioned um, yeah, now you're also replying this. Uh, you know, approach to how you can help data scale-ups, um, you know, in, in the next phase. So talk to us a little bit about that then. And, and uh, yeah, this this kind of exciting venture you're, you're going on now. Right. Okay. So, yes, n- now that I joined uh, uh, with uh, with another agency doing um, specialized growth, then the, the well, I, first of all, I wanted to learn how to, to apply this very successful concepts of, uh, of growth with a data-driven approach, and that's what that's uh, that's what what makes me very curious now. Like, how do we, based on new evidence, like the experimental uh, framework, uh, you make better decisions that drives to growth, meaning more clients, more, uh, more stickiness, uh, less churn. Uh, things like that, um, and uh, together with that, definitely there's a, a marketing like like uh, 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 yeah, there's there's a, a marketing side of it that uh, tries to get more customers, more acquisition, but uh, there's more internal things that also you want to to use as experimentation. So if you're into like computer vision for understanding uh, or diagnosing. Something in healthcare, some kind of uh, condition, then uh, probably you don't have necessarily the the right now the the solution to your problem, but you might have some very interesting uh, educated guesses of where you think the technology, what type of algorithms, what type of data is needed to get to that solution, and and, and then it's just a matter of uh, trial and error. I've done that with uh, with some some of my uh, clients, for example, in insurance technology, where the problem was. Let's get. Uh, let's try to optimize from uh, a client that submits a claim to getting paid. Uh, that's a problem that every insurance company actually they all want to pay up, really. But uh, there's so much handholding uh, that uh, it it ends up being like a very daunting process of like two three weeks until you actually get paid. Mm. And uh, minimizing that time. To, to getting paid or getting to a resolution, it's it's really not straightforward. There, there is conversion from something that probably it's, it starts with a manual form filled out manually uh, to something that uh, is like, yes, the, there's enough evidence. You, there's there's a, 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 
an insurance policy on the other side that you need to check against. Is this covered? This is not. What kind of event was it? Is there computer vision involved? Like, is there any kind of evidence to sustain that? Like, what what really happened in that event? What were the like the sequence of events and and uh, that it 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 ends up being a very hard uh, decision making problem. But definitely, is there a chance that machine learning can intervene there and optimize that? Absolutely, yes. Uh, maybe not everything one go to end up trying to uh, you you choose your battles. Like you choose what subset of things a machine might uh, might be able to help, and and really for me, machine learning it's it's not a uh, an alternative to decision making. As in, you don't uh, use machines instead of humans. It's more like a decision support system, really, where you use algorithms, you use machines to make better decisions. Mm -hmm. humans at the end of the day is making these decisions, but they have a lot better tools at their disposal to 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 really make sense of uh, what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really augmenting uh, the decision making power of, of a human. And that's, that, that's very powerful, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I suppose when it comes to, you know, that, that concept of automation versus human input, What's your opinion as a as a entrepreneur having founded and, and built data functions from scratch and, and you know, scaled data functions? What's your approach and, and kind of what systems do you take to 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 building data science teams? You know, sort of how what, what do you say there's kind of a, an optimal way of doing things from? Um, and I, I guess that, that question is relatively loaded because it's probably a very different answer sort of pre and post pandemic now. We're you know, kind of living in a, a bit of a different world. Um, but but yeah, what's what's your your take on uh, you know kind of human input, a team, you know, versus uh, actually being able to do a lot through through just right. very smart systems? That's massive, actually. That's probably one of the biggest problems. Uh... To, to success and for growth and scaling. Uh, that's probably one of the first questions that any, if you're fundraising, uh, VC fundraising, that's going to be one of the first questions asked. How do you grow a team? A fantastic world-class team. And um, the way that I approach this is really to realize that this is not a transactional operation. Like you're not hiring people it's not a pay and receive work kind of transaction thing. It's it's a lot more of a, a purpose and meaning sort of a, sort of thing. There's a there's a an interchange of uh, of knowledge and skills and time and money involved, uh, but all uh, targeted to 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 purpose and meaning. So that's the number one thing that I would. Uh, uh, that I like realizing uh, that people want to be involved in something that has purpose, uh, and it's not just for a paycheck, not at all. Actually, uh, I also like to to be a mentor to all of my employees, and uh, that helps in being sort of like a career builder uh, thing. Um, coming from academia, then definitely I know and I understand growth paths. And uh, I really like my teams growing, uh, even at a uh, at a higher pace than me. So at some point they, uh, and that's why I hire people. Really, it's not for me to 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 call the shots and tell them what to do. It's the other way around. They should be telling me what to do. 
And that's uh, that's what I like about my my employees. They they don't need to start there, but uh, eventually they will become the experts to the point that I need to ask them questions and they need to tell me what to do next. Mm. And that becomes very interesting. Yeah. Then um, I like to focus on their goals as well. So that's uh, something that is probably uh, not all the time understood. Like uh, they, you really need to understand what they care for, what they're optimizing for to, to understand if they make a good fit with your team. Cause they're, if you don't do that, then there's probably going to be some frustration uh, with that uh, new employee or with the rest of the team. So check for alignment. Check check if uh, how good of a fit that new person is with with the rest of the team, and that's pretty much matchmaking. And that's uh, something that I really care about. Like a personality between uh, teammates is that going to work or not? Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah, I think there's some really great points in there. And actually, interesting hearing you speak, actually, how I can see a huge amount of overlap between um, the practices you're implying there to data, building data science teams and actually similarly how I feel about building recruitment teams as well. You know, so when we're, we're hiring internally and you know, to your point about purpose and meaning, um, I couldn't agree more. You know, from a, from a data science perspective, I think it's really important. That's, that's one of the things I probably advise clients when they're interviewing candidates kind of first and foremost is like really if it's assumed that somebody has all the techniques and, and understanding, you know, able to do the statistical modeling and all that kind of thing, that's, that's great. But fundamentally, do they care about the problems that they're solving? You know, I think that's the most important thing is that kind of purpose and that kind of meaning that's there. And it's the same within recruitment as well. I mean, I guess there's lots of different recruitment companies out there, but you know, all doing the job in a slightly different way. But the most important thing to me is that we've got people on board that buy into the mission you know of what we're what we're looking to do and our mission is fundamentally to make work a happier place for people yeah that's kind of what we yes yeah. we place people into jobs but we really want people that, that that look at the world through that lens um so i think giving that purpose and meaning to people is 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 absolutely key uh, you know i think it's it's sort of thing that helps drive people forward when we all have bad days and we get knocked off the horse um you know definitely it's the thing that pulls me gets me out of bed every day you know ready to ready to rock and roll and I tend to uh, look, look at these uh, as a sort of like an um an evolution sort of perspective like a system evolution thing like where where uh, there's incentives uh, uh at the system level um a company needs to achieve some goals that's some some sort of uh, incentives and there's personal incentives as well and there's teams incentives and there's uh, your manager incentives and there's all sort of incentives when you align them uh well then definitely there's a good, very good chance that everybody's going to be happy everybody pulling the same direction and things just uh, progressing mm. which is what you what you want to see as a, in, a, in, a, in a company really absolutely absolutely yeah and i really like your point as well about the kind of acting as the mentor to the employee, but actually at some point, you know, you kind of, it's the only way to sensibly scale any business that at some point the, you know, the, the whole is greater than some of its parts and people do sort of surpass you probably in certain areas of expertise or they do bring something else to the table rather than you sort of necessarily needing to be there and, yeah. and micromanage people. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really healthy approach, but I can imagine it's a paradigm that doesn't necessarily play out in a lot of companies where probably, yeah, you know, a lot of companies with, with poorer culture still feel that it's the manager who's the manager and they're in charge and they're the authority point and you know um it's everyone has to do, do what i say and again i certainly see that in recruitment a lot you know companies that have poorer poorer cultures very kind of 
micromanagement versus, you know, one of our core values is innovation, right? I mean, I've been doing a job 15 years, but if somebody walks through the door tomorrow with a month's experience and they think of a better way of doing the job than, than me, why would I, why would I say, you know, no, it's my way or the highway, you know, you'd obviously listen to that person and, uh, you know, and, and sort of encourage those, those ideas. So I think that's uh, another really good point. Um, so yeah, you, you kind of, um, clearly you've got a very interesting and varied, um, background and it's a question I always like to ask entrepreneurs that that have uh, you know gone and um, achieved great things what would you say is the biggest challenge you think you faced in your career um, and how did you overcome them well uh, it's hard to choose one actually but uh, <laughs> probably Probably uh, one of the, the 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 hard choices I needed to make was very early on in my undergrad degree. We we're so young back in that age that making uh, a good choice about your career path it's a very hard problem, uh, a very hard thing to to solve for at that age. So and I ended up in the wrong path initially, and it took me quite some effort to move paths early on when i was already quite advanced at my undergrad to just say like really this is this is like i was on a, on a management path at the beginning and and halfway through i found out that that actually didn't make any sense i was not happy and that was not fulfilling at all so i needed to move really and but making that choice that hard choice that was kind of bold and it paid off absolutely that changed my life completely and when I moved, actually, that uh, I was twice as incentivized as the rest. So that actually ended up being a fantastic motivator that still drives me nowadays. Mm -hmm. So that's good. It stuck with me just. So that's one of the things that uh, was quite hard. Uh, one of the biggest challenges, probably, initially, to make those kind of uh, hard choices. Um, more more on the... Uh, on, on the latest path on, on entrepreneurship, probably turning, uh, coming with a with a technical background means that, uh, especially with a scientific background, we're trained to solve problems, uh, to discover things really, to solve things uh, that haven't been discovered yet without necessarily understanding or caring too much about the, the application in an industrial level. There's an application, obviously, in, in, in universal understanding that's uh, of greatest value, but uh, maybe not with the greatest of, uh, of, of applications in industry nowadays. Maybe it's a futuristic thing. Uh, and it ends up that some of the times with, with that kind of a scientific mindset, you end up having a bunch of fantastic solutions in search of a problem. Uh, and that is a very hard problem to face, actually. Uh, so one of the biggest challenges that I faced when I was an uh, early employee was to turn solutions into products. Uh, so I had fantastic solutions, breakthrough solutions, really, uh, lots of IP. And how do we do turn those IPs into, into a tangible thing? Uh, and my honest answer is I wouldn't like to be in those shoes again uh i don't think that's uh that's good for industry i think it, it should come the other way around you should try to find a problem uh a real problem a, 
pressing problem that uh, in industry and then find a solution for that, like the best fit solution for that, not just like uh, a fantastic solution for looking for a problem. Mm. Yeah, that's actually really very good point. And it's reminded me of uh, this this program that, that we're watching at the moment, actually. I don't know if you've seen it on Disney called uh, The Dropout. Um, and it's about it's a story about Theranos and uh, Elizabeth Holmes and, and that whole, whole business. And, and that's a great example of what you just said there of, of a company that's focused on we've got to build this tech, we've got to build the IP, and then we'll work out how it's going to you know be a value to humanity rather than looking at the bigger problem, bigger picture first, and then sort of, you know, retrapolating that back into, okay, well, what's the best way we can build tech to, to, to do that? And I think that's fundamentally what got them, got them in hot water and, and you know, ultimately what, why they got prosecuted just because they were claiming they had this tech that they didn't have. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, sort of going about the thing all, all wrong. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, a very, very good, very good point indeed um okay fantastic well, i think it's been absolutely awesome uh chat enrique really enjoyed speaking with you and uh i like to end all podcasts in, in exactly the same way uh as, as a man as wise as you i'm sure you've probably received lots of uh advice over your career but um i always like to ask what's what's your one favorite piece of advice you'd like to share with uh the rest of uh humankind uh, yes yeah, so what, what's the best piece of advice you, you've received all right. Uh, well, uh, probably the one that I like the most is uh, don't let fears of what other things of uh, you stand in the way. Uh, basically, you want to, if you have, you want to stand for what you care for. So uh, that's probably one of the people. That if you have something, and uh, you want to stand by it. Um, that's probably one of the biggest things that I've uh, learned in the past to just uh, stand by your ideas. Yeah, fantastic. I think you're right. People people often uh, fail in their own mind before they get started, don't they? Because of uh, the fears of, of what may be. But uh, yeah, having having confidence and faith in your own volitions is, uh, is something I think we could all benefit from. Absolutely. Um, Superb. Well, look, really, really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you very much for your time. Um, and uh, yeah, I wish you all, all the very best with your, uh, your your venture. I'm sure uh, very exciting things to come with your uh, your VC incubator of, uh, of, of data and tech scale up. So uh, yeah, I look forward to watching your progress uh, closely. And uh, I'm sure we'll speak again uh, very soon. Yeah, fantastic. The latest thing is still on, on stealth. So uh, if you invite me uh, later on, then definitely I can tell you more about that. I will do, absolutely, rest assured. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll, I'll be in touch. All right, good to see you and uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks again. All right, cheers, bye. Yeah.